0: Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. My name's Ian McNally and this is the podcast where guests talk the way through the six beers that changed everything. And in this episode, I get to talk to Brendan O'Sullivan from Three Ravens. This is a guy worth listening to. Let's get into it. Well, welcome, Brendan, to the Chosen Brew podcast. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, mate. I'm really excited to get you on the podcast because I've been courting you for quite a while (laughs) uh, to get you on. Um, For many different reasons, really, because your kind of beer experience is very multifaceted. And then how that's manifested itself recently at Three Ravens is something really exciting. And I think people, a lot of listeners will want to find out about and know about and kind of peel back and also we really want to know your beer journey and the six beers that changed everything and probably some of those that have an honourable mention as well so um,
1: yeah it's been it's been a long long journey for me and a really just a natural one it wasn't that I wanted to be a brewer I just loved beer I wanted to share my love of beer and one thing led to another and it's yeah it's come a long way Because you.
0: Because you're originally from Western Australia.
1: Yeah, born in Melbourne, but raised in Perth. So my journey started in Perth, which was, I guess, in Australia as, as good a place as any at the time. Uh, it was the home of craft beer and its its modern era with uh, the Salon Anchor Brew Pub really kicking things off in the, uh, I think it was the early 80s or late 70s with the um, the Australia's Cup. Um, and it, it really grew from there. I always, um, always felt... Perth was the, the home of craft beer growing up. Uh, there were so many great breweries around and so much great beer. And uh, there was one day one when uh, the Crafty Pint website launched and he was claiming Victoria was the, the home of craft beer. And uh, because it kind he of hurt that. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, know, I, I do now, now agree, uh, partly because I live here, but partly due to the I guess the acceleration that's happened over the last uh, sort of 8, 10 years. It's definitely uh, a lot going on here a great place to be
0: and one thing that really jumps out in terms of your beer journey and your contact with you know the the beer industry is how passionate you seem to be about education about being an evangelist not only for the beers that you sell and the beers that you make but the process and the science and you know I've heard countless stories of your Patience and generosity of time um, in explaining, you know, to novice homebrewers or experienced homebrewers, or you know, people within the industry of how you make beer and how you'd like to, you know, use different things or
1: experiment different things or collaborate. Where does that passion come from? I've always, always been very passionate about beer. I think. The 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 want to educate and to to help uh, stems from I think a few different aspects of my life and my upbringing. I think when I decided to move from uh, a career destined in uh, mecha- mechatronic engineering, which is where I I was studying, I'd kind of spent my my uh, my high school and late teens uh, focusing on um, robotics and physics and and all of those sort of things. I, I really wanted to to help. Uh, the world. I had very lofty, idealistic, egalitarian, uh, and, and you know, philanthropic goals of of making the world a better place. So when I when I made that decision that to shift to brewing, um, I really wanted to satisfy that same uh, part of my my brain. So I, I kind of felt like if I could help Australia become better at drinking beer and better at enjoying beer and better at making beer, then I could help kind of improve people's lives um, through through beer and through food and through enjoyment of the the day to day. So so part of my my want for the increased education and the, the increased awareness and enjoyment of beer is because I want I want that to exist in Australia and I want to be a part of it. Like I want that to I want to be around people that are as enthusiastic and and want to talk about really geeky things about beer as much as I do. So the more you can educate people to get to that level, the more the more people there will be around me. I think growing up. Most of my mates didn't didn't give a shit about hops or or you know IPA or wort or all the stuff that I really wanted to talk about. So um, had to surround myself with the, the people that were just as passionate, like fellow homebrewers. Um, I think some of the other influences that that have that have kind of uh, helped my approach to brewing is is the people that have helped me. Uh, so Michael Jackson, I think, is a really big influence in. Uh, my uh, my the way I talk about beer and the way um, I want I want people to perceive beer um,
0: and that's Michael Jackson the beer hunter yeah
1: the English uh, beer and whiskey writer if if for those that haven't uh, read read his work he's he was pivotal in in introducing the world to, to Belgian beer styles and helping define styles um, but just exploring beer and writing about it his passion was was so um, tangible just just reading the way he wrote uh it got you excited about beer about flavor and it was all very accessible and his his approach was to to make beer accessible and the, the people's drink and never to never to pontify and never to make it exclusive or um unattainable you know beer beer was always the people's drink and should always be the people's drink so i think his his approach was always to 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 be friendly and welcoming and help people on their way and, and never put people down for not knowing anything and i think that's just a great approach to life um, and craft beer has a challenge there, doesn't it? Yeah, because yeah definitely. Because a lot of what
0: craft is can be daunting, can be inaccessible, can be kind of, um, you know, it, uh, you mentioned before that you said you'd like Australia to drink better. Uh, what does that look like? <laughs> <I think laughs> and for, for me, and, and what does Australia up, do? How
1: does some of Australia drink badly? <laughs> I think the... Uh, funny funny we're talking about it the picture on the wall behind us um is of a a corona bottle um, with a lime in the neck um and for me that that was one of the things i didn't enjoy about uh beer was people that drank beer that didn't taste like beer because they didn't like the taste of beer it seemed kind of pointless to to have to be drinking something as a vessel for alcohol without actually enjoying it or without wanting to taste it uh I think that's kind of defeats the purpose of of the beverage in the first place. I think what drew me into beer was the the characteristics of the flavor and fermentation. I, I'd always really enjoyed uh, fermented vegetables and and you know stinky cheeses and sauerkraut and uh, anything with fermentation character, sourdough bread, all, all those kind of things really appealed to me, and I loved that the the fermentation aspect. I think of of those type of products. So beer was just a, a natural. A natural thing for me to be drawn to, in that it celebrated those those natural fermentation characteristics, and uh, yeah, I, I, I want I wanted people to share in my love of things that had flavour as opposed to things that didn't have flavour, and I wanted, yeah, I guess historically having a lot of um, Irish blood, there's a lot of drinking in my I think in my family and in my DNA, and I thought if I could help to shift that away from mass consumption for the sake of consumption towards thoughtful and considered consumption in moderation then that would be definitely a, a step in the right direction that's that's how, that's where I hope a lot of people are going in Australia and I, I think it is with the, the decline in overall volume consumed here and the, the shift away from um, mainstream easy drinking lagers towards uh, craft and smaller companies and, and things of more interest. yeah I think
0: that's definitely the trend uh, overall beer consumption down. Uh, craft beer consumption up kind of around 30% year on year, hmm. um, which is a, a, a massive compliment to the industry and what, what's happening there. Um, those flavours that you described, they're quite sophisticated. Were you How old were you when you started liking smelly cheeses and fermented things? We I think did, the, did you have many friends? At high, <laughs> did you open your lunchbox and people were kind of like, oh, here, well, here's I was, Brendan. Um, <laughs> I was pretty lucky
1: that I, I grew up around uh, food. My my uh, my dad worked in supermarkets um and uh, my mom was i think when i was younger in a in a ice cream bar but shortly after working for a, a dairy company um selling you know cheese and, and and small goods um so there was always that um access to to cheese and small goods and and cured meats and things at home um not a lot of i guess fermented foods other than that, um, but I, remer- I i distinctly remember the time that my my auntie um, introduced me to blue cheese. Uh, at the age of thirteen, I was uh, visiting. Um, she's here in Melbourne. Um, just lives around the corner in Clifton Hill now, but and she's she's my godmother, uh, so it's had a, a big part in my upbringing. Uh, but I was over here on my own, uh, staying with um, my godparents, and uh, she got out the we went and visited the the cheese store, and then brought all this cheese home and. The experience of walking into the the bridge, what's it called, the Richmond Hill Larder and Cafe, um, as a thirteen-year-old, which is just—I don't know if you've been there—but it's an incredible uh, cheese cellar uh, lined with wooden shelves and temperature and humidity controlled, and um, the the people there are just so enthusiastic and passionate about what they what they've got, and and so knowledgeable. And that experience of, of having being overwhelmed um, in the senses of, of of cheese and having someone that was so knowledgeable about their product and so passionate about it and just wanted to give us tastes of everything and tell us where it was from and what stage of maturation it was at and then and then going back home and having my auntie open up this um this blue cheese and and um you know i think i was quite shocked by the aroma but the look on her face was was quite different it was of you know pleasure and um quite sexual she was describing it in such a with such passion and with such um like she was describing it as like smelling like socks but in a way that she, clearly she thought that was a really positive thing <laughs> and i think that just kind of flicked a, a trigger in my my brain that that made me think about flavor in a different way uh, from that point onwards was you know stink can be a really positive thing and that's i think that's continued to this day I almost feel like I'm, I'm making the wrong podcast. It should be the six cheeses that change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> It'd be quite good, actually. <laughs> I'm definitely not the man to do it. So if anyone wants uh, to run with that idea, it's yours. Um, we we should get started um, maybe with uh, your beers that yeah. changed everything. Um, you've brought, uh, you've
1: actually brought some of them along here. I we'll have to post it on Instagram, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so choice was, was...
1: Yeah, one of my first loves. Um I, did, I started drinking um, quite early as most most Australians do um, as a teenager, um, sneaking out um, on the weekends with mates and, and drinking pale lagers and you'd sort of drink what your, your parents drank um, or what they thought was good. So there was a lot of like low-carb, easy-drinking lagers at the time and that's kind of what we uh, what we would drink because it was cheap and didn't have any flavour. Um, but the beer that I think really became my first love other than things like Bex and Stella, like the, the fancier options of... Of what was around uh, was Hogarten um, and for a good reason in in Belgium, they refer to it as kid's beer. <laughs> uh, have you heard that one because no? it's, it's so low in bitterness and quite sweet because of the wheat um, the wheat character and the spices and the citrus um, it's kind of one of the things that's that's most uh, most accessible to to younger palates when you 're not not accustomed to bitterness I must uh, say yeah it, i've
0: uh, had um maybe 4 or 5 years ago I had Blue Moon which is made by Coca-Cola but it, it absolutely did taste like soft drink <laughs> and um that definitely would fall into that category but I think Ho Gardens probably a, a step away from that.
1: I think in Germany they have a similar approach as well that that um you know younger people or people that don't like uh, beer or bitterness tend to lean towards uh wheat beers, vice beers due to their their sweeter character and um lower bitterness. Um but yeah this is the one that that really got me hooked. Um as a teenager, um, I'd take it to parties, and um, there was one occasion where someone drank my whole garden, and I um, had a tantrum and ran off down the street because <laughs> <laughs> I was so upset that the only thing left was pale lager and uh, I couldn't have my whole Uh yeah I think
0: you wouldn't be the only person uh, the, I reckon there's a lot of people listening who would take special beers along to a party and they would disappear uh, or you know I think I remember my dad just drank Guinness that's all he drank and the, the, the Guinness with the widget the draft Guinness and when it, it, they never had it at any party so he always used to take his own but he basically have it in a carrier bag and put it in between his feet <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> it's so safe. nobody, Good idea. Yeah, nobody take could take it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing that really um, I think ex- introduced me to, to more beer and why Hogan and is such an important part of that journey was when me and my friends started going out um, uh, when we were of legal age, going out to town. We we avoided Northbridge because it was quite a quite a horrible place to be back then. Um, a lot of violence and just bad nightlife, uh, bad music, bad bad booze, um, dangerous people. So we used to go into the city, the Perth city, which was relatively quiet. There was only a couple of bars there, um, like a live live music late-night late, late night venue um, that we used to go to. And just down the road was the Belgian Beer Cafe um, on King Street. Um, so going there was, was such a great experience, even though a lot of my mates weren't really into beer. For some reason, there was a hub around the Belgian Beer Cafe of the people that hung out on that side of town, like sort of the, the creatives and the musicians and... Sort of the yeah the young young people um, the circles that I was in would would um, r- would regularly go to the, the Belgian beer cafe and they they would have the uh, as you know that the giant Ho Garden glasses um, like the one we've got here which were just so much fun to drink out of the the theatre and the the majesty of holding such a large glass um, was really special um, and yeah it did help people were happy to drink Ho Garden regardless of what they what they usually drink. So it was, uh, it was good to be able to get, get gr- groups together there. We had a lot of uh, birthday parties at the Belgian Beer Cafe. And uh, yeah, I think hanging out there introduced me to a lot more Belgian beer, which was definitely a, a positive thing back when I got really excited about beer. When I, in sort of eighteen nineteen, 19, um, we didn't have IPAs. Um, Little Creatures, I think, was, was always around and we, we did drink that. I think it was the first place that I started drinking uh, underage because they, uh, they, they never had a bouncer at the front door. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was definitely some pale ales around, but IPAs didn't exist, and imperial stouts were weren't really seen. So, for the youthful uh, beer drinker that, the, or the Bozo as I refer to it, which I, I still am a bozo to a degree, the the beers that we went to as bozos were you know triples and quadruples and the uh, the big Belgian styles. So Belgian beer was was really exciting back then. It was it was the the go to for for anything uh, big and powerful and intense and shocking and. Yeah, so that 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 was a really good place to hang out and, and really good place to kind of cut my teeth in drinking beer and enjoying beer and the theatre of, of service too. Um, they had such an incredible range of glassware at the Belgian Beer Cafe and the routine that they would go through in rinsing and pouring the beers and um, yeah, it was it was really something special and uh, yeah, helped helped uh, influence uh, the way that I drank beer and and the uh, the way that I wanted people to enjoy it. And when you're in the most isolated city in the world.
0: That it is a connection to the outside isn't it having a bar which is pretty much all the beers are imported there is a sense of you know there's something else out there despite yeah, I, the fact that the yeah. domestic scene in WA was pr- prolific
1: we we also we always had a really good wheat beer in perth uh, redback when it was brewed in uh, in western australia was outstanding it was it was it was the biggest biggest beer you know and it's it's been interesting to see the shift in beer trends in australia where it's declined so much to the point that you never see it anymore. Uh, from being what I remember to be one of the biggest beers and one of the you'd see it on every pub uh, around around Perth, and people drink it with grenadine or a slice of lemon, or it was such a big thing. Uh, and for some reason, people's uh, palates have changed or, or, or perception of the word wheat have changed, where it's no longer trendy. I feel like the the, the brewery was was done no. It was done a disservice by moving moving production around so many times that they, they lost a sense of how to brew the beer well. So, you know, when a beer's not tasting how it should, obviously people are going to move away from it. Um, and I think that was really the downfall of, of that beer in the end. Um, but that was, it's, yeah, it was such a such a big part of drinking culture in Western Australia, drinking vice beer. And uh, I guess it was Hogarden and my love of that wit beer that, that led me to uh, one of the most important parts of my beer journey, Um one of my mates, uh, who I'd, he, I, I worked with him at a supermarket, um, stacking shelves, but we'd never really spoken to each other. I, I thought he was a mute um, because he never spoke to anyone at work. Um, but he saw me on the bus with some CDs one day, and I was like, "Oh, what are you listening to?" And it was some, some stuff he was into, and um, yeah, we got to talking about going to gigs, and yeah, became really really good mates. But he, yeah, he knew that I was into Hogan, and said, "Oh, you've got to try this this German wheat beer, the uh, Stefana. Um, I think you'll love it. So i was like, where do I get it? And he told me about a shop in uh, in West Leaderville, uh, this kind of beer mecca called the International Beer Shop, uh, which was like a little um, little candy store, little corner corner deli that had been converted into a, a bottle shop. Um, I think it was a Sly Grog shop back in the day, but it had uh, an incredible range. At the time, it was the, the biggest range of beer in Australia, and they did online sales and beer packs. And so I went down to find this Vine uh, beer, um, and just kind of fell in love with the shop. It was like walking into that cheese shop, but the beer version of that cheese shop where the, the guy behind the counter was just so knowledgeable. He had a, an encyclopedic memory of, of stories and tales and beer labels and he was just as enthusiastic about you finding the right beer for you um, as, as the cheesemonger was. Um, so that became one of my favourite, favourite shops and as a sort of 18-year-old with four jobs uh, studying engineering, I spent a few hundred dollars every week down there uh, doing research and, and what I described to my research. family as investing <laughs> in my palate, uh, which I really believed. That's a fine fine way of putting it, isn't it? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
0: but that's that's quite odd, isn't it, for a, a, an 18-year-old to be seeking out like relatively avant-garde beers and because um, most people generally kind of get, you know, they go through the the phase of those mainstream lagers mainly just
1: due down to availability but you know peer pressure etc you clearly weren't i think um, there's always been I've, I've met plenty of people in their sort of early or late teens early 20s that are, that are as enthusiastic and knowledgeable and there's always going to be some i guess who who are, are searching for those flavors and i think i was always a bit younger than most of the people around me in, in beer circles but i guess that's the nature of nature of life and I suppose yeah. clearly it's it, it, it maybe um, shows that you
0: have a mind of your own and that's, um, you know, you weren't worried about, you know, drinking things to be popular or whatever it is. And that perhaps has an influence as you go through to making the beer that you are now. Mm. Uh, would you think that was fair to
1: say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I've always... Um, yeah, I guess my, my parents have always allowed me and, it's, and fostered my t- ability and, and, you know... Uh, Encourage me to do what I want and what's right for me, and to, to not be restrained by any anyone else's decisions or thoughts. Or so it's always been a really positive influence in in my development. In in you know things like leaving engineering, even though I'd inv- I'd invested so much money in it and time, and you know because why why waste time doing something you are not enjoying when you when it's obvious and right in front of you what what you should be doing and what you what you're passionate about. Those those kind of um, the support in making those decisions was was um, yeah really important in my life and has helped helped guide me towards um, the career and the person I am today. Clearly, there's a difference between
0: or there's a balance between a brewer needing to have creativity and flair and art and then science. What do you think would be the perfect ratio of of an ideal brewer? What percentage of those would you think, what would be creativity and what would be science? And I think and most
1: engineering, most scientists are creative. I think uh, throughout history, uh, most of the really successful scientists have been really creative people as well. Um, so I think they're both really important. Mm. I think um, without a, 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 a fundamental understanding of, of what's happening, then it's really hard to, to be accurate and repeatable and... Um, yeah, it's hard to quantify, really. I think you can have a, a really good brewer that's mostly science with a little bit of creativity and you can have an, a similarly awesome brewer with a little bit of science and heaps of creativity. Where do you think you lie? Yeah, good question. I um, I never thought I was particularly creative. Uh, I, I was really into art, like um, art and maths were my two best subjects in, in primary school and physics and, and music and things I was really into. I always struggled to decide which way to go, I had to give up arts um, and music to focus on all the engineering subjects and I c- kind of felt like I was leaving part of myself behind not not doing those. Uh, but I never thought that I was particularly good at, at exercising creativity in drawing or in music or in, in any aspect of art um, until I started brewing I think was where I was applying science to be creative and to, to that was kind of my canvas uh, where I could be uh, creative independent of, of just tracing something or playing someone else's music um so maybe less of the less of the creative and more of the science um maybe 80 20 yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's good uh for something you can't quantify that's a definite
0: answer <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: uh, quantification? yeah
0: so it, it i think it, you're right i think um it's probably a misconception that scientists aren't <coughs> creative and creatives aren't scientific. But as you say, mm. a lot of it does flow into each other. And clearly that's kind of with the range that has been coming out of three Ravens recently. um, That is a lot of excitement around the creativity and the branding and, and kind of the, the, the actual product in the can is really exciting and different. Mm. But it wasn't like that when you joined three Ravens, it was fairly what, what kind of, What kind of situation
1: did you have when you arrived? I think it's funny, going back over the history of Three Ravens, uh, I think the the perceptions that I had of the brand and and its history weren't quite the same as as reality. Um, I'd always thought of the beers as being very uh, derivative and and referencing historical styles and being replicas. Um, But in the early days, actually, they really wanted to create unique beers and unique twists on those styles. But back in 2003, 2004, they found that really hard to market. Um, they couldn't. They couldn't communicate to customers. Customers, if if they tried to someone, they'll tell someone they're brewing, like a a smoked ale with this and that, or a a wit beer with um, lavender and or chamomile and loomy lime. That was it. Was a bit too far out there. So they they kind of dialed back from having their own. They they were using colors and 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 very different approach to to how they described the beers. They kind of dialed it back to referencing historic styles. So I think that that retreat to a safe position and a safe marketing position wasn't always what they'd set out to do. I think they'd always wanted to, to push boundaries and, and brew styles that challenged the norm and that were, the, were their own and were their own local spin on things. Um, but so when I, I stepped into Three Ravens, it was 2014, I think just over four and a, about four and a half years ago. Sort of joined businesses with MASH over in the, the Swan Valley and were brewing a lot of uh, someone else's sort of Internal, but someone else's brands uh, for distribution, and the Three Ravens brand had sort of just uh, taken a back seat um, in that process. So there was the core range of six uh, quite uh, conservative European uh, beer styles, with an American pale ale as well um, that had been dialed in and had won awards and were were you know really really decent beers and did well, plugged away throughout the year. And uh, Adrian McNulty was doing some pretty exciting one-offs. There'd, there'd always been a one-off series too, like the, the Uber series and uh, uh, I think they had a few other different one-off batches. Uh, Adrian had been making some really weird weird one-off brews on the old old kit um, and barrel-aging uh, smoked beers and, and that, that sort of really out there stuff, but they were always really small and never got much distribution. Um, I think what, re- what really grew the company was, was brewing American IPA uh, under the MASH label. That really became one of our biggest sellers and helped us help us increase uh, production volumes and justified commissioning more fermenters. Um, when I when I joined the team, it was as brewer, um, so I got to do all of the production under uh, Ian Morgan, who's now with um, uh, Mountain Goat, um, and also managed recipe development, uh, which was really exciting. I think it's uh, something that Ian was happy for me to take care of because I'd been doing it for so long and and been home brewing for such a long time that I'd. I'd kind of got my head around all ingredients and, and most beer styles, and was was just really comfortable um, adjusting and tweaking and, and managing that side and water chemistry and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think in my first week, they they gave me the reins to the the pilot brewery, the uh, the, the 300 liter system, um, and said brew whatever you want. Uh, it was probably my third day at work or uh, fourth day at work, and I'd, I'd brewed a India Saison. Um, so I guess that was a, a sign of things to come. That I was, you know, and we created this new series called Little Ravens, which was one-off batches, which really suited what the market wanted, which was different beers all the time. Uh, we very rapidly realised that brewing on that scale didn't make any, any sense at all. So we um, we started brewing full-size batches, um, and slowly I, I, I started finding ways to use old bits of equipment that weren't being used anymore to to expand um, experimentation and the, the range and. I, I'd always wanted to in, incorporate uh, sour brewing. I've been brewing Berliner Weiss for a long time and, and loved um, aged sours as well as fast souring. So, they, yeah, they became a part of the repertoire. and Yeah, it's been a, a slow shift towards uh, where we are today, where we, we produce uh, unique Australian-style beers um, and a range of really exciting and, and boundary-pushing stuff. Um, some uh, derivative of, of styles from around the world and some that we're, we're kind of championing of our own. I think, uh, yeah, I'd always seen more value in, uh, and something we'll probably touch on a bit later, but the the, the notion of creating um, unique Australian beers is is really important to what we do now. Yeah, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, you talk about the Belgian beer cafe, there's definitely there's a definite
0: sense in Australia that Australia is always looking to the rest of the world. And I think the beer's got to the point now where we can start taking the beer to the, you know, australian beer and be proud of it and take it to the rest of the world and be confident in it yeah definitely um which i don't think we've kind of well i say we as an immigrant uh <laughs> so, you know uh, we haven't really done that before um yeah
1: it's happening i'm, I'm mindful that we're skipping forward a little bit in the uh, in the story so i might i might just go back to the weinstefana crystal vice so here. is this choice too Choice number two. I, I wanted to get the alcohol free version of vine um, Stefan. Uh, it's not as easy to find as I thought it would be. Um, the reason I, I chose that as my beer. We're, we're drinking the Crystal Vice beer now, which I think when I when I first drank the Crystal Vice beer, it did. This was my epiphany beer. Um, after my friend told me to go down the shop and, and try this beer, I tasted this and it it just um, it really did blow my mind um, that there could be such. Such intense and incredible flavour from uh, yeast hops, and water, that there was no fruit in this, there was nothing added to it. It was just it was just beer uh, made well um, with an expressive yeast that tasted like bananas and, and cloves. And so, yeah, this, this really was my epiphany beer that, that sent me down that slippery slope of, of wanting to go back and try more and explore and understand where that flavour comes from and why it's there. Like, I'd always been a tinkerer, um, pulling things apart and trying to figure out how how electronics worked and how machines worked. So I think beer became another one of those machines that I wanted to break down and and figure out how they got that flavour in there. Um, it's also so. quite humbling, isn't it, to read the label that says since 1040. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: It, it doesn't even
1: sound like a year 1040. But um, <laughs> it's, yeah. So the reason that the... The Hafer Weiss beer, alcohol free, made my list as, as, as my second beer. I was, I was working um, four jobs. Um, I was a bit of a workaholic. Um, I'd been working since the day I turned uh, 14. You've got to um, pay for that blue cheese. Power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My parents never gave me pocket money other than, you know, for, for paper rounds. So I wanted to buy CDs and a stereo and that sort of stuff. So I started working really early and um, I was working four jobs and I had uh, sinusitis. Um, so I had to have surgery on my sinuses, and I, as a result of the recovery, I couldn't work the manual labor jobs that I had been doing because I was quite dusty. And um, you know, I was a cleaner and a factory worker, and um, in a supermarket, and uh, just doing anything office cleaning. I didn't really care what I was doing; it was all all fun for me. But I um, I was looking for this uh, alcohol free because I couldn't I couldn't drink alcohol while I was on the antibiotics. Um, but also replied to a to an ad in the international beer shop newsletter at the same time they're advertising for a beer taster which I thought was sounded like the greatest job in the world as a 19 year old student <laughs> they're going to pay me to be a beer taster I've got a I've never never been turned down for a job I may as well apply for it there's no no chance in the world I'm going to get this um, and in the same email I said oh by the way have you got the alcohol-free vine because my favorite beer and I can't drink at the moment um, turned out the job was marketing Voyage Defan um, as, as a sort of a you know, tasting rep going around to bottle shops and pouring it for people. So um, obviously I got that job um, and that was my first job in the beer industry as a, as a merchandising uh, rep for, for Voyage um, So that was really where I learned to talk about beer and where I got to share my enthusiasm for my favorite brand. Um, just really on the front line, like I felt like a shop troop walking into bottle shops, you know, as a um, you know, a pierced uh, nineteen year old trying to convince middle aged men um that they should drink the beer that I love and why they should why they should love it as much as I do and um it was really good fun. It was really challenging and um I, I wanted everyone to believe in it so I had to learn how to approach different people. Um yeah, so I learned a lot about communication skills and uh I, I yeah really I was really passionate about it, so it, it came quite naturally. Um I ended up working for that that company for about seven years, I think. Phoenix Beers, one of the, I think one of the best beer importers in Australia, and that, they were the, the company that started the International Beer Shop. Um, so yeah, really, really influential uh, on the beer industry in Australia and on my career. I, I after uh, working for them for a few years, I went back and managed the shop in Perth um, for a few years, and, and really got to know the Perth beer scene and the people around there, and expanded my knowledge and my my ability to write about beer by writing the the copy for the website and the newsletters and. Um, yeah, it was good fun. I think that's why uh, I've got uh, a lot of friends in, in Perth and I always get treated like royalty when I go back because a lot of people that, that grew up in that era uh, remember me as their, their candy man, um, the guy that would, uh, yeah, get them the good stuff. <laughs> well, I think
0: we're kind of finding out as well that, you know, it, it takes years to become an overnight success as well. If Three Ravens is, is is a success and is up there in the top breweries in Australia right now, we're fine though. There's hard yards, isn't there, before you actually get there? And I couldn't think of no harder job than standing,
1: <laughs> standing in a bottle shop as a young man, trying to flog German beer to. Uh, to I still people. love doing that stuff too. Like I think of uh, throughout my career, I've worked in a lot of different aspects of beer, uh, purely because I want it to be about um, the love of beer and the sharing of the passion of beer, and it takes it takes all all workers in the beer industry and in the hospitality industry to, to grow the industry and, and to communicate to the customer um, what the beer is about. And I think coming from that front line to then working further in distribution and in retail um, and in sales, I worked in hospitality over the years in beer and um, worked in homebrew shops. And um, I guess I've, I've meandered around a lot of different aspects of the, the beer industry just through through sheer love and through wanting to see the whole lot to the point now where I'm at the the production and the the, the running a, a brewing company, it's really handy to to see the full product chain through to the, the the customer. And I think it's it's important to always think of the customer and the end goal. If if you haven't, if your your product hasn't reached a customer and it's not an exciting product for them and it doesn't have a story and it's not something that they're going to want to drink, then there's no point in, in in brewing it. Which I think has been reflected in in what's happened at Three Ravens and how we've changed. It's all been about. Meeting the consumer where they're at and, and giving them a good experience, uh, both in producing the styles of beer that they're excited in, or helping to educate them towards the styles of beer that we want to brew, um, that they probably will be and and can be as excited as we are about if they if they were um, introduced to them.
0: Because I suppose there's a balance between meeting the customer where they're at, but also taking to the custom taking the customer where they don't know exists yet. <laughs> so exactly. it's kind of dragging the customer to... It's a bit of both, I think. A yeah. point, yeah. But yeah. I, d- I don't think you can't do that without that story, without a relationship, without trust there. Yeah, um, I think
1: it's just the nature of communication and rapport as well. You can't convince someone to do something they don't want to do, so you've got to find a way to make it their decision or, or meet them where they're at, find out what they're interested in. And I think working um, at, uh, in, in a restaurant, Josie Bones, really helped with that um, understanding of, of the customer being the most important thing and just to find out what what they actually want, what they like um, and then find a way to kind of guide them along the way and take them to the next step and then the next step from there and then join the dots of, oh, you like this, you might like this thing that you've never thought about but you know whether it's cider or champagne or red wine or um, spirits, um, there's dots you can join if you have the knowledge um, which they... A lot of them didn't have, but once they joined that dot, it was it was obvious. And oh, I like coffee. I didn't 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 think I liked beer, but this imperial stout's really delicious. I, um, where can I get it? I want to. I, I only drink imperial stout now. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of those. What a way to live! <laughs> only
0: drinking imperial stout, nothing else. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> well, let's go on to
1: choice three. Yeah, cool. Choice three is a, a big bozo beer, uh, and I, I wanted to choose uh, Westmall Double. As my, as my third beer. Uh, it was... I couldn't find it. I, I had a good look around. I found some of the West Mall Triple, which is is a delicious beer, uh, but I wasn't able to find that uh, in this instance this week. Uh, so instead, I've got the Trappist Rochford uh, 10, uh, one of the Bozo beers uh, that I'd mentioned earlier uh, that we drank at the uh, Belgian Beer Cafe. Um, the... The expression of those those yeasts is so insane. The the beers are really drinkable. Uh, Belgian uh, doubles and quadruples, they've got um, a complexity that that belies their strength. Being such big beers, you know, you'd expect in modern brewing uh, to brew beer that's ten percent. It's going to be intense in flavour and um, really bitter or re- really <laughs> roasty or really alcoholic. Um, but the Belgian approach was always to make a really drinkable beer. So while they might have a lot of colour. They're actually really balanced and really soft on the palate and not particularly bitter and the alcohol is not particularly pronounced. Uh, so I, I was always really intrigued by those, those Belgian styles that were really delicate and finessed and Westmold double for me was the, the epitome of that finesse. It was such a, and still is such a, such a balanced and drinkable beer um, in such a tight package. Um, I, I fell in love with it and loved drinking it, but it was quite expensive. So I thought, why don't I try and brew this? Um, I love this beer, I can't afford to keep drinking it. It can't be that hard to to make a, a Westmore double. Um, so I bought a homebrew kit and started learning about brewing. It also was a way for me to, to become better as a, as a sales uh, person in bottle shops because I get a lot of pointy questions about what bottle conditioning means or whether it uses this or that or what's the process and what does this mean. And I, so, Sometimes it was people trying to catch me off guard. I think um, it's a very blokey thing to try and um, one-up another bloke about a technical thing, or or particularly beer, um, so I'd always get pointed questions, and I wanted to answer them. I wanted to be honest and open, and I wanted to be to arm myself with as much information as possible, so that no one could um, catch me off guard or stump me, or you know, ask me something I didn't know. So, home brewing was, I guess, it originally a means to to become a better sales sales rep, or or you know, merchandiser. Um, but I also wanted to brew those Belgian styles. Uh, that I, that I love drinking uh, I found out very quickly that Belgian styles are incredibly challenging to brew and, and one of the things you should probably wait until the end of your, your home brewing journey to attempt um, but it was fun to learn that I think uh, you just skipped the Cooper's 10 <laughs> and it went straight to the, it can't be that hard to do what the Trappist monks have been doing for my first hundreds of years <laughs> my first beer was a, a lager because that's what like, the guy at the shop said I should brew first um, and my second beer was a, a Belgian strong dark ale <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a really bad book, though. I, 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 was, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's a book called um, "Clone Brews" uh, by an American couple, and uh, they have all these recipes of how to clone your favorite commercial brews. And um, their their recipes were just really weird. They had their Belgian beer recipes had you know like ten different malts in them and spices and all these weird um, unrefined sugars. And it's it's definitely not how the Belgians make those beers. Um, it's it's an American filter on how to make a Belgian beer but I learned very quickly the the power of star anise uh in in brewing and <laughs> why why things need to be used in restraint. Uh, <laughs> you yeah it just was, it was a horrible. horrible. No. That <laughs> <laughs> was horrible. Yeah, not a good beer. But I've had yeah heaps heaps of great times on the on the rochford 10. I think uh just the, the the way the the yeast presents in such a complex and delicate and spicy and uh, interesting way i i love um we also we use the, this yeast strain um or what's purported to be the Rochford yeast strain uh at three ravens for for the druid and we've used it for a few other beers over the years but the druids um sort of built around this this yeast strain so it's been really fun uh having done five vintages now of the druid to see how how the yeast presents itself differently using um different fermentation different pitching rate different oxygen different gravity um yeah it's really one of the most fascinating things about beer that's unfortunately not all that trendy anymore. Uh yeast and and Belgian and wheat beers uh yeah
0: and malt as well <laughs> like malt, you, you know we've I've spoken about it on the podcast before but this um actually Colby Chandler from Ballast Point Point, who is responsible for push, pushing out like sculpting like some of the most hop forward beers and he was championing malt as the next big thing i, I don't yeah.
1: know whether that'll happen, I that will happen but there's got has to be a return reached, to the consumer yet i yeah. think that brewers in america are really championing uh maltsters and working with local farmers and small companies and um we're certainly appreciative of of people like stuart voyager um to provide us with really exciting malts and gladfield in new zealand and even even coopers in south australia who are producing what what I think are some of the best uh, base malts around at the moment, things with actual character and um, lineage and, and history and a story that we can tell about Australian ingredients and Australian companies. Um, but it's definitely not as sexy as as, as hops. Um, they've definitely become the, the darling of of the consumer's eyes in, in brewing. Mm. Put the workhorse, as always, is forgotten. Uh, a <laughs> little bit <laughs> like Boxer in Animal Farm. One of the beers uh, that was left out that I just wanted to mention, the uh, Schneider Aventinus one of my favourite German uh, style. Uh, it's a weird one, a Dunkel Dunkelweizenbach, a, a dark strong wheat beer. So it's kind of best of both worlds. It's got the intensity of a, a Belgian and um, the, the uh, German yeast character and spiciness. Um, yeah, that was one that I drank quite a lot of uh, <laughs> growing up. I I uh, also really enjoyed things like the uh, Unibrill Findemon. Um I worked, ended up working um, as a... Was twenty. I'd moved to Melbourne to take a break from from uh, engineering studies. Uh, started working at a homebrew shop in Yarraville called Grain and Grape, who I still work with, um, and uh, just bumped into um, the guy that it was importing Unibrew I'm in a bottle shop. And he's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, oh, "I'm just working and taking a break and learning how to beer, learning how to brew." And I was like, "Oh, let me know if you need me to do, to do anything for you." And he was like, "Yeah, you can do tastings for me." So I was working for two beer importers in in Melbourne and a homebrew shop. Um, which really, yeah, it was great, great to get that exposure of, of beer in Melbourne and, um, you know, visit different bars and uh, venues and um, just kind of see how, how great Melbourne was at uh, hospitality and enjoyment of beer and just the, the small bar scene, which I hadn't really been exposed to, um, that didn't really exist yet in Perth, it does now and... So having that opportunity to work with um, with the Unibrew importer was really fun. Really good part of uh, my upbringing. Um, next beer on my list was meant to be Emerson's Pilsner. So choice for Emerson's Pilsner, I had
0: just before the Moku website closed <laughs> down. I think I ordered some because I hadn't tried any of the Emerson's beers before. Hmm.
1: I was really impressed. Yeah, delicious beer. I think uh, it was Michael Jackson's great beer book. Or the the beer bible, I think it might have been called that, um, where I where I read about it, uh, and just the way he wrote about it was so exciting and so made it sound incredible. So I I tried that. Um, they got some over at the international beer shop, so I, I tried that, and it really did it changed my perception of of pilsner um, and what pilsner can be, and it was also kind of one of the first beers that I'd tasted from uh, from a country where they'd kind of created their own spin on something and made it truly their own i think that was really the beginning of the the new zealand pilsner style uh, was with emerson's and using those those you know sars derivatives to create something truly unique um so i found that really really uh i guess inspirational that emerson's had created this own their own beer that, that championed their local ingredients um so that was it's something that australia had never done uh particularly well um and it was yeah something it was a glaring omission from the Australian environment given that New Z- we we do drink a lot of lager um Australians love lager and you know we're such a the perfect climate for lager um, New Zealanders have been doing it for years and um I was judging uh, uh, the international beer awards with uh, a, a New Zealand master brewer Shane from uh, from Steam Brewing and he asked me um who in Australia was doing uh, Australian pilsners and I couldn't think of any a, a single brewery uh I was just drawing blanks, and I was so I was kind of annoyed that 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 it didn't exist. That he just kind of pointed out such a, a, an important and valid point that someone should be doing it. Um, no one is doing it. Why aren't they? Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of started thinking about that a whole lot more, and um, I got an opportunity um, to brew a beer with Bridge Road uh, while I was working at Josie Bones. Uh, it was under the Bar Series where they approached 12, 12 of their customers to, to brew a beer with them. Uh, so I jumped at it immediately uh being a a professional brewer at that stage um and wanting to brew this beer so i said yes um, i'm in i want to brew this beer that we want to serve in our bar um it's a perfect opportunity so we brewed an australian pilsner and it it went so well and i just got really hooked on that idea of of creating an australian pilsner and um championing that in in our market uh and i think it's still something that's that's really lacking i think there's a lot of people producing new world pilsners with american and new zealand hops and and a blend of hops but not many people that are really championing that 100% Australian uh, molten hop-based uh, pilsner. Um, so we've we've been brewing one here, uh, the Thornbury Lager, which is now Thornbury Pilsner, uh, for the last couple of years. And it's it's probably the beer that I drink the most of at home um, and the one that I take out. And I just love drinking lager, going back to that um, that youth drinking Becks and um, you know easy drinking um, Euro lagers and pilsners to to just really enjoying the subtlety of of malt and the just that yeast yeast character um, that you can get from from certain lager strains that's really really satisfying and then combining that with unique Australian hops as well. You just mentioned that
0: it was Thornbury Lager now pilsner. Is that a sign that it's one of the reasons maybe that pilsner wasn't a thing was because it was difficult to market or. I think, think like the I think that's why we I think that's why we originally
1: called it Thornbury Lager, but we also were describing it as an Australian Pilsner. So Thornbury Lager was the the brand name and Australian Pilsner the style, but we found that confused people a little bit too much and angered others uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> they thought we were trying to trying to trick them. But yeah, we're, we're
0: recording this uh, after the uh, soon after the gabs. Um. And I can't believe that anyone would get angry about these. <laughs> <laughs> the pedants who would get angry about things. So th- this is quite an interesting journey so far because it, it's pretty much European. And then we're going to um, choice Yeah, the five. next one that I had on
1: my list, which was one that missed out, but I think in light of Emerson's missing out, we can probably uh, probably add that one in. It's the, the Stone and Wood Pacific Ale. Uh Brad Rogers was for me a, a mentor growing up. He was an idol, you know, as a as a teenager that started home brewing and was really interested in beer and going to beer festivals. I'd bump into him quite a bit, um, having being that he was working out of Matilda Bay, and would just pick his brain. Um, you know, they were brewing some really exciting stuff back then. They were brewing, you know, saisons and coffee beers and honey beers and. Um, a lot of really fun stuff and he was an open book, um, you know, he's, he's really happy to talk about recipes and advice and techniques and he was really well researched as well in in how he approached those things so definitely a, a big influence on me and someone that I really looked up to and appreciated that I could, you know, talk to on the level and uh, yeah, it was really, really fun uh, but then seeing him move on to, to create the stone and wood brand um, and talking to him about that in the early days as well about creating a, an Australian beer, um, was really inspirational you know in 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 light of things like Emerson's Pilsner um and wanting to see Australian style beers to you know Brad Ro- Brad Rogers and his mates creating this brewery that was essentially making the beer that Australians wanted to drink uh, but weren't drinking yet or the the seeing where trends were headed and saying this is the beer that suits our climate it's the beer that reflects our ingredients um and this is a new Australian style which is it's interesting the 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 debate and the legal stoushes that have gone on over the years, because um, yeah, it's always been a style, and and that's how Brad had always described it uh, personally, and in in, to to everyone that that he spoke to, was that um, they were creating a new Australian style and were hoping it would take off. Yeah, it's yeah, um, it's unfortunate they lost the um, the legal battle this time around, and I think for the final time, I'm not sure if that's going to be overturned again. But I think it is a style that's great for Australia to own and. Because we've never had Australian styles other than sparkling ale and maybe export stouter, some of those other sort of loosely Australian uh, old ale sort of beers, I think Pacific Ale is something we should be proud of and should be able to own and champion as a style that's born here and something we can export to the rest of the world. Um, So I'm going to crack that one open. when When it first came out, I was... I was really 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 into it. I bought I think 5 cases one Christmas and gave a six pack to to all of my mates and anyone else that would take one because I wanted everyone to to get on board and get behind this this new Australian brand and this new Australian beer style and yeah it's uh definitely I think been one of the most influential beers uh, in Australia um in recent years and uh and in just in in, in our approach as well and uh giving us the confidence to to brew Australian styles and to really just carve our own path rather than feeling like we should be derivative and uh, emulating um, otherworldly beer styles. We can we can be confident to know that we've, we've got the market here in Australia and the people and the education to, to create our own stuff and also then to sell it to the rest of the world.
0: And the fact that um, that part of New South Wales, not very far from Queensland, Queensland did extraordinarily well in the Gabs 100,
1: in terms of the growth of their um, craft beer brand, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which there's is some solid, so many solid breweries um, starting up in Queensland. A lot of really talented brewers uh, making the move up there to to kind of head up these operations, and a lot of investments and really big breweries. So obviously the confidence that there's the the changing palate, um, and I guess it's you, you never want to drink what your your dad drank, so you you find something else, and so all of the the forex generation there. Their kids want to reject that and find something else, so it's it's worked really well, I think, for um, for the craft beer market in Queensland, for and for the growth of craft beer in Australia, really. And
0: let's get back to uh, Three Ravens. The things that really stick out for me recently is the the milkshake series and mm-hmm. the juicy mm-hmm. as well, which have really kind of you've worked hard to create a buzz around those things and have uh, parties and. Um, the branding of those has been really important as well. I had the um, Salted Caramel um, IPA. Is that right? Yep, so IPA, uh, salted it? Caramel Shake. Yeah. yeah. Milkshake IPA. Um, I shared it with a group of friends at one party, and everyone their jaw dropped and they were all saying this is i need to get a six pack of this and then so i took an, another one to another friend's and left it in his fridge and we didn't drink it and then i got a text a few days later saying i've just opened this and this is sensational but it what strikes me though with with it is that it for for someone like me who drinks a lot of um different styles of beer. It's not something that those words didn't really appeal to me. Yet I really enjoyed the beer, and it, I suppose the balance comes in, and the fact that it it just was what it said. And I think at the um, at the local tap house um, we had the um, popsicle, oh yeah, yeah, which, the pine and lime creamsicle, yeah, pine and lime, which again was exactly what it said. Which The taste, and so often beer is described in one way, and then when you try it, you'll say, oh, well, I, I get sort of elements of that, but mm-hmm. both of those beers were absolutely what they said and delivered on all
1: of the, the words in their title. So how do you do that? <laughs> I, I think I put it down to the uh, the thousands of dollars that I invested in my palate. <laughs> I think as a brewer, your most valuable tool is your palate. I think it's it's something that really guides... Um, flavour and recipe development and in- ingredient um, procurement and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I wasn't joking when I was saying I was, I was investing in my palate I think it's worth tasting not, not just beer but all of the food you can. I, um, I'm i mostly vegetarian but I don't pass up an opportunity to taste something new. I really, really love exploring different flavour and I think it's been beer that's really driven that in me, that, that want to understand the palate of flavour in the world um, and how those things might apply to beer or um, it's really driven my, my desire to learn more about cuisines from all around the world, and unusual cuts of meat and offal, and um, things that you normally wouldn't put in your mouth. Um, but also I love challenging uh, people's perceptions, so creating an experience. And I think it it, it might even come back to that that you know the cheese experience, where you you're shocked by how good something is or how much you like something. Or I think it's that that moment where you you have low expectation but then have a really good experience that that gap is overwhelming and gives you a really good time. So I love creating that opportunity where um, people are are, speculative, but then you convince them that that something can happen or something's better than they thought it could be. I think that's that's an opportunity to give someone a really good experience um, and a really positive experience. And and you've got this, um, when you came to Three Ravens, the brand
0: was maybe traditional um dusty maybe uh but it did have good distribution and it was clearly in people's staple you know had a good market and so on i think
1: being one of the one of the earlier breweries where the oldest independent in in melbourne i think that really helped to establish a connection with um the people who are now kind of the the elder statesmen of craft beer they remember those they have really fond memories of of uh, drinking through ravens back in the day and um those styles were i think they're still really val- valuable styles in the in the context of craft beer and flavor and they're just not things that we can sell and not things that we feel we should be focusing on um and so that
0: that transition from from that into what has become a really kind of you know uh hot property in terms of branding in terms of excitement around craft beer it, it it's kind of night and day and you would Expect in that transition for there to be some kind of growing pains or or kind of it almost seems like two different brands but somehow it's been managed that you've kind of grown in a way
1: that it's kind of encompasses everything which yeah, is really impressive been, it's been hard like we we there was resilience to dropping any of the classic beers uh Back in the day and, and when we were producing uh, mash products as well we had I think 11 and after we introduced Thornbury Lager we had 12 permanent products um, to produce out of 3 fermenters um, and with one storeroom which was tiny and it just became quite challenging. We We were kind of banned from introducing any new products because everything was selling a little bit but nothing was selling particularly well. So um, it took, a, it took a, I guess, a change in uh, our, our directorship to, to enable us to, to make the positive shift in the right direction and to make those bold decisions. I think uh, uh, our previous director was quite conservative and um, wanted, yeah, I guess just, just wanted to make safe decisions, uh, whereas for us to, to head in the, the right direction and make those shifts um, towards products like Juicy required some quite bold decisions. Um, we originally were allowed to brew one one-off batch of the the juicy ipa um, under the little ravens banner uh, but myself and our manager were both you know I'd, I'd seen the trends around the world and even like stone and wood like it was the original nepa in my in my mind like a hazy low bitterness hop driven juicy um beer i could see that style really working in australia um in a toned down and sort of more more australian fashion so when we brewed that that one-off in inverted um I'd already contracted for 12 months' worth of hops um, to scale that beer up because I knew that it was going to work and I knew that we just had to do it. Um, we had to get it through however we could um, and be first to market so that we could then build on that brand and invest in a, a proper label um, with the people that I knew could create the brand that we that we needed um, to sell it. I remember you talking a it could be a Good Beer Week event where you were saying
0: how important and, uh, it was to have the juicy fresh and how sensitive it is, temperamental. Um, how's that kind of worked out in terms of when you get into the the
1: commercial world, when you lose control of the controllables? Yeah, it is challenging, particularly when we distribute practically all around the country now. Um, it can be, a, and it's an ongoing issue for us to try and manage and mitigate those risks, uh, i i didn't i I never really wanted to brew much of it i wanted to only sell it locally and and brew a different batch every time so everyone knew that it was a different batch and had a different name or a different number or um but the the real the reality was that that brand was doing so well that it that it would be silly for us to not um, continue to brew it um yeah we tried 12 week best befores um they weren't Necessarily, all that um, well received by retailers. Uh, We put a weeks on one batch once, and uh, that yeah, we 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 had the beer out pretty much to everyone within three weeks, but then no one wanted to sell beer that was best before five weeks. So yeah, it was it was a hard hard thing to try and figure out how we do it and how we how we ensure that all of our logistics companies are doing what they say they're doing, which is keeping the beer cold and. Um, yeah, we, we have had some speed bumps along the way where where freight companies haven't done what they've said, or retailers have or you know restaurants have put the stock in there in their office above the compressor for the fridge, and then wondered why solids are falling out of it. Or um, yeah, it's it is it it just comes down to education really, and about consumers needing to know why um, and why that's happening, and demanding better from from their retailers, and recognizing why that's occurred that it's not necessarily the brewery's fault um that there is a, a chain that needs to be followed and i think we're getting better at communicating uh and, and better labeling we're writing things like um best consumed within within three months of of canned on date um so a canned on date and no best before because any kind of best before is going to be unrealistic um putting a you know treat like milk around the top of the can um Confuses some people, but get some thinking at least about what it means and why it's on there. And uh, yeah, we have we've we've been we haven't had that many issues lately. I think the beer is selling through enough um, in the channels um, that we sell it through. I think we're we generally whenever we we package a batch, it's it's gone within two to three weeks, um, which we're happy and, and confident that it's that it's getting out to people. We try and limit volumes and where they're going, and just keep keep people to minimums and spread it as 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 wide as we can to to try and ensure that. The stock selling through uh, really quickly, but you know, there's always people that don't have good rotation. Um, yeah, but that's that's a it's a much bigger picture and something that's out of our control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, where are we off to? Choice five. This yeah. is my job, isn't it, to see where exactly <laughs> this is the yeah, only in the right job direction. I have to do is to count the beers. So.
1: Next one. Um, next one on my list is the uh, Cantillon gers. Um, so I've tried to, I guess, while while. Having like a, a progression of of style and intensity, there's a sort of uh, the, the order that I thought would be good to drink them in. Cantillon Gurs, I think, is is the one beer that has always it was in my top five when I was twenty, I think, and it's and it's still there. It's it's one of the only beers that I still consider like you know one of the one of the best in the world and and one that I would that would be a go to if I could only find it. Um, it's it's always. I think it's been my favorite beer, and it's it's a really easy question to answer now, and has been for ten years or so. When someone asks, asks me what my favorite beer is, um, working at the international beer shop, we we imported Cantillon, um direct from them through uh, someone out of Belgium, um, and no one else wanted to stock it. We we uh, we had it front and center in front of the counter um, at the shop, and it would collect dust because uh, no one wanted to pay. 1699 or 1599 for a, a bottle of beer um, that looked like wine um, but the staff are so enthusiastic about it and anyone that had traveled and been to Belgium or, or lived in London for a while got it and knew how how great they were but they were definitely in a quiet taste but really satisfied my 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 tastes and that that love of funk and weirdness and and those stinky flavors um, so it's one that's that's always Always, I've always loved it. I've always loved drinking it. I can't really find it anymore. It, it tends to come and go in, in bottle shops quicker than you can, um, yeah, quicker than you can get your hands on it. Um, so, in lieu of Canteon Gurs, I've got the uh, Tilquin Older Gers. um So, Tilquin, um, the founder, did do a bit of work with Canteon. Uh, he went and worked there as a as an intern uh, for a while, and um, he's one of the only uh, Lambic blenders that's uh, given access to Cantillon's to uh, wort and beer. So um, I'll, uh, I'll open this one up and, and share some with us. It is one of my favourite Lambics, um, and it's actually influenced our culture uh, here at Three Ravens. Uh, so I, uh, I've been brewing sour-style beers since about 2007, I think might have been my first uh, attempt at brewing Lambic Um 12 years ago and I that was the first alvia that I tried to brew because I loved Lambic and I wanted to brew lambic but after buying a, a y yeast lambic smack pack and brewing a, a turbid mash in my parents garage and um, attempting to recreate as accurate as I as I could a lambic um, I tasted my home brew uh, maybe three months or six months later and it just tasted like uh, like rubber bungs and band-aids and um, and so I left it for longer and it didn't get any better. Uh, and I'd been brewing some Flanders Reds and things as well, trying to just have any go up most of the sour styles. And I, it was really a crushing lesson that, that Lambic and Flanders Red Sal beers are really hard to brew and something that you really need to get right and maintain properly and um, that they are a, a real art of, of blending and maturation and, and ageing to get the flavours right. So... From that, I learned that I needed to get better at producing acid, so that's when I started investigating fast searing techniques. Um, sort of twelve years ago, I wanted to I wanted to get my head around lactobacillus first, and then once I'd nailed lactobacillus and pediococcus and producing producing acid, then I could get on to the maturation and the ageing and the the Brettanomyces. So that's really what kicked off my my interest in in fast searing or kettle searing as we call it now, um, and producing Belenovice styles, uh, which I was sort of got a bit of a reputation for um in homebrew. Um it's something that I love brewing and won won quite a few awards for. Uh but yeah, so the the, the reason that the Tilkin culture um is big and, and is related to us at Three Ravens, when um when I was brewing a, a batch of beer um, with a friend Quentin, we've we've got a hundred litre barrel that we share, um a Yolumba red wine barrel. Uh the first beer we put into it was a, a Belinda Weiss style beer, um probably eight years ago. Uh, we filled it with Belinda Weiss, took that beer out after 18 months or so and put it onto fruit. We did like a strawberry version, a blueberry version and a apricot version um, and then we refilled that barrel with uh, Flanders Red. So we had 100 litres of Flanders Red that spent some time in that barrel. Um, when we emptied that, I think about four, four years ago now, four or five years ago, we put a Lambic style beer into it and in I- as a part of developing a, a rich culture for that for that barrel to make a lambic that that truly tasted like lambic, I wanted to to give it a, a proper uh, culture. So I, I'd had um, commercial cultures as many as I could get, bottle dregs from other bottles that I'd that I'd um, I'd drunk and enjoyed. Uh, but I think the one that made the biggest influence was was Tilquin. So I cultured up the dregs from uh, a bottle of Tilquin, a really fresh sample that had just come into the country, and uh, it immediately got very ropey. Uh, ropey meaning like the snotty characteristic of a, a sick beer uh, indicating a, a really healthy Pediococcus culture um, and developed really intense brett aromatics as well. So it had all the hallmarks of, of a really healthy culture, um, really great aroma that, that reminded me of my favourite Lambics and the Pediococcus that would, would make really good sour beer. So that lived in that barrel for a few years um, but as we introduced more and more culture to our range here at Three Ravens as we went from kettle souring to barrel souring with um, lab cultures to the next stage, which was creating our own mixed culture, um, that Tilquin culture and that Lambic culture from that barrel made its way into that, that Wild Ravens culture. And I think still has some of the most uh, profound characteristics in our, in our house culture. Uh, I think they came from that. Uh, that bottle of Tilkin, among other things, but I think particularly the, the Pediococcus um, bacteria, which produces acid um, slowly over time in light of alcohol and bitterness, um, as well as the the that defines our, our culture. I think a lot of that came from this beer. And
0: it's a massive commitment to kind of take on, you know, when you're talking in terms of everything's in terms of years rather than weeks or months. And so you do have to play the long game with these things and, and to perfect them i suppose that's why belgium might have a head start <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we, just, we could try catch I up. i don't need to do anything it's, uh, it's just in the air or in the yeah, wood or, yeah yeah
1: um let's do choice six yeah next beer up is uh feral hop hog so american style ipa um brendan Virus, you know talking about um the uh, stone and wood guys and um other people have influenced me. might like um michael jackson and the uh, uh, Mark Lightfoot was another the the manager of the international beer shop. Um, Brendan Virus was always a, a really big influence in on me and someone that I could always talk to. Um, he used to buy a lot of beer from the beer shop, and I'd give him homebrew samples. And I'm sure everyone was giving him homebrew samples, and um, you know they mostly collected dust until he threw them in the bin. Um, but he tried um, he tried a few of mine, like he tried my Berliner ice, and um, it, it said it changed his perception of of Belinda Weiss. like he'd never tried any good ones in Germany and um, tried mine and really enjoyed it. And so that kind of got him thinking about Belinda Weiss and he he sort of helped my beers to, to get recognition at the Perth Royal Beer Awards as well when he was on a table of judges that, that all slammed my beer for not having any foam retention and them not liking it. Um, he made them all change their scores because you can't judge a beer that has no foam retention poor for having no foam retention and you can't judge a beer for being poor because you don't like it um, so he made everyone give it gold and helped me win champion beer and <laughs> but yeah really, really good good guys um, I used to spend a heap of time out at the brewery I used to visit Feral a lot I'd drive out to the Swan Valley and just go to Feral and then go home again um, but drinking hot hog was was a huge part of um, growing up it was it was always in good condition around Perth every pub it was always drinking really fresh it was really well balanced and just the finesse that, that Brendan and Will and their fastidiousness over um, a selection of hops, and I remember going out to the brewery one day, and it was a Friday afternoon. And Brennan and Will were sitting on the patio with, I think, um, seven or eight glasses in front of each of them. And um, I was like, "What's what's going on?" They're like, "Oh, we're just you know doing some quality control. There's there's something not right about a couple of these, and uh, we're trying to figure out what it is." And it was you know eight glasses of hop hog, and they were just like, "These are all different batches, or from different points from the tap and from over here," and. They were just so. I thought they all tasted awesome, um, but they were so anal and so intent on improving even the the, the slightest thing um, that that was really, yeah, really inspirational and and a big a big part of my growing up was drinking hot hog. When I moved to Melbourne uh, eight years ago, um, I, I I don't think I've had a hot pog that tastes tastes the same since. Um, it's just yeah, it has to be drunk fresh. It has to be drunk uh, well handled and. I think they've um similar to what we've we've seen with juicy that always struggle to, to get distributors to do what they say they're gonna do or publicans to keep the beer cold and, and things like that. So yeah, I think they would have been one of the first to use that tagline treat like milk as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um
0: which yeah. Is, is yeah, so great to I
1: think um Little Creatures might have been the first. They used to have a, a green like a laminated printed carton with hops all over it and that um that always said um handle like milk. Um, so I think Feral, um Brendan really appreciated that sentiment. I don't think Little Creatures kept it for very long, but um, Ferrell maintained that um, and have definitely popularised it and, and kept it def- going. It's definitely a
0: consideration we didn't have in the north of England. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the worry was that you'd leave it out so long it would it would become solid. <laughs> so <laughs> it's. Uh,
1: I brought that. I brought the can in today. I haven't um I haven't tried it out of the cans yet. Um, no, no, same. Yeah, I know that. Uh, They'd always been into the bottles and and maintained that the bottle was the, the better option because of the ability to counter-pressure and purge the bottles. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, it's there was only so long they could resist the shift to cans, particularly for those styles of beer.
0: And this is a 10-year anniversary of Hop Hog can as well. It kind of seems a long time... In craft beer, but in no other measurements. is 10 years. 10 years is kind of... Only in Australia. Yeah, it seems sort of so.
1: Maybe like in it- Italy or years, yeah. another, another growing uh, craft beer market. <laughs> Since 1040. <laughs> <laughs> so. But it's funny saying that That's the amazing. original hot hog recipe that um, Feral brewed for the 10th anniversary of the Tap House, um, just seeing how underwhelming um, a beer that beer was using the ingredients that they did when they started brewing it and the, the ratios of crystal malt and and that sort of thing and to think that that beer was so the the way i thought of it at the time and, and i guess how most people would have thought about it at the time was that it was so progressive and so fresh and so intense and um, by modern standards it's it's really it's underwhelming you know it's easy drinking and sessionable and um, yeah, even yeah, the dry alcohol volume was unheard of. Like,
0: Yeah, kind of 5.8% Was just seemed knock your socks off And now
1: It was over 6 uh, I think it was 6 yeah. Or low 6s early on Yeah um, Yeah, but now You know It tastes very, very old school Yeah Compared to um you know, <laughs> 10 what years old drink now Yeah <laughs> So it's matured
0: like a
1: comfortable pair of slippers. Yeah. Um I think that's it. There was a few more that I wanted to mention. Yeah, let's let's um, give some honorable mentions. Pliny the Elder, I think uh that was always my inspiration um for IPAs, reading and hearing about um uh, Russian River and their IPAs as well as their, as, their, as their sour beers um and occasionally getting some samples brought back from the US um of that and the, the Blind Pig it really that's influenced my approach to, to brewing IPA, having a really lean, dry Juicy IPA with low bitterness and um, really, you know, good good water profile and really bright. So, in brewing IPAs here and um, in my in my life as a home brewer and in my career, I think it's it's feral and and uh, Russian River that have influenced that that style. And and really, I think what what has influenced a lot of Australian styles too, being um, low in crystal malt and and light in body and low in bitterness and just balanced and drinkable and about aroma hops. So I think that's that beer was very much. Ahead of its t- ahead of its days, and has influenced a lot of both American uh, beer culture and beer culture around the world. So yeah, definitely um, one of the one of the beers that you know, and, and both the beers that influenced Hop Hog and, and Feral, Um being that Brendan used to spend a lot of time with Vinny and picking his brain about sour beers and and how to how to make a hoppy beer and how to dry hop. And um, it was it was incredible to meet Vinny Chilozo a few years ago in Canberra um, at the Homebrew Conference and. Um, sit on a stage with him talking about sour beer and and hear him talk about um, his process for IPA and to drink fresh you know fresh pliny beers that were in kegs that had been air freighted over just um, after a week week or two after packaging um, that was really cool and uh, I wanted to finish on Murray's Wild Thing um, a, a brand that doesn't really get much uh, much love or you don't really see around that much anymore but uh, when Murray's Wild Thing was first released that was uh, it was I think. That, as far as I know, one of the first Imperial Stouts brewed and packaged in the modern era in Australia, at least into small pack. Um, so for us and the, the, you know, the nerds on Beer Advocate forums, we were, we were pretty excited to, to be able to buy a cube of Imperial Stout to put in our cellars to to enjoy over the years. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably dozens, if not more, breweries making that style now. But, for, for, you know, Murray's were very at their time and, and being able to enjoy that beer and cellar it, um was was pretty fun. I um I really appreciate having that beer around at the time, and and then wanting to seek out more imperial stouts from around the world,
0: and receptacle of beer to drink these ones out. <laughs> I'm got sure a you'll few, see it I'm in the gonna, picture I'm later, but put um, a picture on Instagram of I think all the appropriate the glassware vessels. is
1: is always the best. I've I've got a couple here in the middle. The the Tiku. I think has always been one of my favorite beer glasses to drink out of. The Um, Tiku
0: is kind of like a a wine glass, isn't it? Adapted for beer. It's really nice. I think Paladin
1: might have been one of the first breweries to start using them in Italy. I might be wrong, but that's the first time I saw them. Um, And then Brewdog and a few others kind of adopted that same style, Um, but probably an Italian style um, wine glass. The Speedle, I think they call it the tulip now, they used to call it a Pilsner glass. Um, but I really really enjoy the the, the fine uh, the fine glass and the light feel and the stem uh, otherwise I really enjoy drinking out of the plume uh, stemless I think it's a Chardonnay glass so kind of similar similar styles of glass, but one with a slight flare and one with a one with a stem. Uh, but I think you should drink out of the appropriate glass. a lot of the enjoyment of Einstefan Stefan is the the theater of the shape of the glass and the way the foam uh, forms and just the appearance of the glass and the, the Trappist beers in the, in the goblets and the chalice and the IPA with the functional benefit of the ribs to maintain foam and keep beer fresh. I think there's yeah there's a correct glass for everything.
0: And there seems to be quite a science behind it, which I'm definitely not across, but I'm more across this looks nice <laughs> or this is this is something fun
1: about drinking out of this one. Well, you, um, drink, you do drink visually, you drink with your eyes, so... Giving it the you know that the, the theater that that um, relates to or conveys the story of the the brand and what you're about to drink it, it gives you um, you know it sets up the experience you're going to have um, like the quack glass for instance not having the the stand and having to give your shoe to the bartender to to get a hold of it it's it's the theater that makes it fun and makes it exciting and um, yeah there's definitely more there is functional benefits benefits of certain glassware both in foam and the way it delivers to your palate and and the way it looks but yeah, there's a whole lot of other stuff which is can't be denied i think having come from marketing in my early days it's it's you can't deny the the value of the look and the story and the language and um yeah how how you describe the beer and how you label it and, and what you say and what you don't say is just as important as what's in the in the bottle and if you don't give the beer the best chance of being enjoyed it doesn't matter what's what's inside the the glass and what the liquid's like if you haven't um, set it up for a positive experience then no one's you know regardless of the quality of beer no one's. there's, there's going to be a lot of people that don't enjoy it absolutely um i've got a feeling that i know what this is going to be but what's the
0: snack <laughs> that is going to go with this
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely a cheese board um yeah i love soft cheese with beer uh, particularly like uh, camembert and washed-rind cheeses um one of my favorite pairings for a long time was cantillon gurs with uh, goat's cheese like the sweat on sweat combo um, <laughs> or sweat and go sweat <laughs> um, but just uh, yeah there's complementary flavors but there's also the the, the cleansing of, of acid with fat um, they're both both being agricultural products really you know cheese made from from grass, um, beer made from grass they're gonna have a, they're going share a lot in in flavor profile so a lot of complementary um, flavors but also the ability to be fermented and soured and um, have influence of yeast. Um, and some pickles as well. Definitely need some fermented uh some fermented vegetables on the cheese cheese board. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's there's
0: gonna be something exciting coming up with fermented things. Can you
1: reveal that yet? This episode will be out in March. have a um yeah, fruit beer masterclass coming up at the brewery, um, which will be uh in collaboration with Harper and Blom. Um really great cheesemonger in uh they're in Brunswick now. Um I've, I've done a few events with them and just love what they're doing their Their curation of cheese, I don't think I've... It's, it's really hard to find people like the the cheese the Richmond Hill were back in the day that, that actually buy cheese at its optimal or pre-optimal condition and then maintain its flavour to its best potential. I think just like beer, just like Nipah, cheese needs to be handled properly and needs to be stored at the right temperature and that doesn't mean cold. Um, cold temperature can ruin cheese just like uh, freezing beer can do the same thing so they're great I'm looking forward to that we've got a lot of fruit beers a lot of um, sort of previews of of beers that are coming up for us in the near future Um, we have a new shake which is probably going to be out by the time you hear this uh, a coffee and blueberry shake um, made with uh, a really interesting Honduran coffee from uh, Proud Mary uh, with notes of blueberry um, contrasting that with with actual blueberry and uh, mosaic and Bramlings cross hops um, and a whole bunch of Wild Ravens beers um, so beers re-fermented with uh, wine grapes um some on fruit fruit purees like um strawberry and apricot so yeah there's there's a heap of really fun stuff coming up in the pipes for us uh we've got about seven wild ravens releases uh, stacked up conditioning in our cellar uh waiting for for labels to be designed and printed um, so yeah plenty of fun stuff to look out for well brendan it's it, it i've caught you at a moment
0: which is really really exciting it seems like you've got a real head of steam at three ravens and uh Thanks so much for taking us on your beer journey. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for making the journey out here and uh, allowing me to pontify over some really, some beers that are particularly unpopular nowadays. But yeah, it's been, it's been really, really fun and a pleasure. Thanks for coming out. There wasn't a bad one. <laughs> Thanks, oh, Brendan. These beers are going up. Yeah, cheers, yeah
0: really good. Yeah, cheers, Brendan. So that was it, Brendan O'Sullivan. What a journey and. Brendan has really put in the hard yards from the very kind of his teenage years right through. And his approach has been so multifaceted. It kind of explains why he's so good at what he does now. I also need to compliment Brendan. This is not a drinking podcast and guests definitely are not required to bring beers along but Brendan I think was just so passionate about the journey and sharing beer that he brought the beers along and mercifully he allowed me just to have a little taste of each which was very much appreciated because I had to ride my bike from Thornbury all the way to St Kilda after the recording but just a little mouthful of those beers really kind of told the story that brendan was saying and it really brings to the fore how visceral and how emotional the journey of the six beers that changed everything can be so thanks so much for brendan for spending the time to talk us through the six beers that changed everything we have got another belting episode coming up I am heading to Ballarat, and I don't think I'll tell you who is going to be next guest. Uh, maybe you can speculate or guess, but it's going to be so much fun. And I need to give a shout out to Nick Ron. Thanks, Nick, for leaving a review. I know Nick pretty well. I know he's tried homebrew with varied success, and I know he's uh, recently become a dad as well. But he said that he gave a five-star review, nothing less. Uh, and he said he loved the podcast. And he was listening to the one with Hendo, who sounds like a top bloke, which is all accurate, as is the five stars. And he said that the episodes are helping him with daddy daycare duties, which uh, it probably isn't helping me making this podcast with daddy daycare duties. It's probably a distraction. But I get so much pleasure when somebody leaves a five-star review or you get in touch through Instagram or Facebook or any of those things, or send me an email. And also on the Chosenbrewau.com, the website, you can jump on the homepage there, you can send me an email through it, but I've also put in a Spotify uh, streaming um, tab, so you can essentially just log on to the homepage there at thechosenbrewau.com, and you can stream any of the episodes Straight from the web page, so wherever you are, as long as you've got an internet browser, you can have a listen to the chosen brew. So, if you're listening to this in real time, I Wednesday when it comes out, I will be at the Good Beer Week Gala opening on Friday at Fed Square. So please do say hello. If you you won't recognise me, hopefully, but uh, if you recognise my voice, uh, certainly. It would be lovely to say hello and uh, share a beer. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch up next time for a really exciting regional Australian adventure. And I really look forward to talking to you soon. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and anyone who's passionate about beer or anyone who isn't passionate about beer, but you think they might enjoy the listen as well. That would be a sweet spot, wouldn't it? So until next time, enjoy the beers and we'll speak to you soon.